You all ready to praise and worship the Lord? May the Lord answer you in the time of trouble, and in the name of Jacob's God, keep you safe. May He send you help from the sanctuary and sustain you from Zion. May He receive your tokens of all your meal offerings and approve your burnt offerings, and may He grant you your desire and fulfill every plan. May we shout for joy in your victory. We're going to try it one more time and see if we can do it where the walls would have actually fallen. All right. May we shout for joy in your victory. Hallelujah. Arrayed by the standards in the name of our God, may the Lord fulfill your every wish. What a good word. All you that have joined us live, we welcome you this morning, but the Lord is able to meet you where you're at. Amen. Now I know that the Lord will give victory to His anointed. We'll answer Him from His heavenly sanctuary with the mighty victories of His right arm. Who's the right arm? Jesus. They call on chariots and they call on horses. But we call on the name of the Lord our God. Listen to the rest of this psalm in, in the Hebrew. They collapse and lie fallen, but we rally and gather strength. What a word. We go from strength to strength, the psalmist said. Oh Lord, grant victory. May the King answer us when we call. That's good news for us. Amen. Say it with me. Some trust in chariots and horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord. Give Him praise. He's worthy. Some trust in chariots and horses, but we don't. We trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Amen. Give Him praise one more time. Children's church is dismissed. And we have two nurseries next door. The rest of you may be seated. Tell your neighbor he's got something really good to tell us this morning. Tell him that. Say he's got something really good to say. Thanks to the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Ask for the Holy Spirit because I won't be worth anything without Him. Amen. Uh, uh, let's go to a proverb that all of us are familiar with. Proverb 9 and 10. We'll put that on the screen. It says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. That first line, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If you didn't know what that said, what would you have put in there in that last word? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of, maybe you put a lot of different things if we not have that to instruct us. Maybe you said the fear of the Lord was the beginning of turning from sin or the fear, of, I don't know. What would you have put in there if you didn't have this verse? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, the Bible says. That's a pretty powerful thought. This word fear here comes from apprehension. It's not to be afraid of in the sense of Someone who's not approachable, but there's a, it comes from the word apprehension. It means from a sense of weakness and our inferior. We feel inferior. We actually we are inferior, and we understand that. That's what he's talking about there. That we are inferior to God. We have a need for Him, right? So that apprehension comes from a sense of our own weakness in compared to God. 
And so we understand He's the Almighty One, that He knows everything, He sees everything, He hears everything, He's the final judge, He will judge every one of us someday. Every single person that's ever been born will be judged. And the angels who, who did not keep their first estate, as Peter says, everybody's going to be judged. Those in the earth, under the earth, everywhere, that we're all going to stand before God. Nobody's going to be there with you. Just be you and God. And so you're going to have to, we're all going to have to give an account of ourselves. So understanding who God is, knowing He made us, all right, so we are inferior to Him, all right, we are less than Him would be a good way to put that. And that apprehension stems from the fact that we understand who we are based on who we know Him to be, all right? Not that we're afraid of Him. We have some sense of that when we are a child with a parent. You, uh, unless your parent was abusive, you, had, you, didn't, you weren't afraid to approach your parents. You had a relationship with them, but you understood the parameters of their authority, and that was higher than your authority, and so it's positional. This kind of fear is positional, right? So it's not the sense of being afraid in order to approach but it's positional. So wisdom, let me give you the understanding of what wisdom is in this context in the Hebrew here. It's the discrimination of good and evil. In other words, to discern. You can understand, start, become wise, exercising the correct judgment. So basically what the proverb is saying is the fear of the Lord, understanding who you are and understanding who He is, is the basis for discerning between good and evil. Now think about that for a minute. If you do not retain God in your knowledge, if He's not a part of your life, if He's not involved in the realm of who you are, you don't have any wisdom. You might have some knowledge. It's earthly. We'll look at that in just a moment. But you don't have wisdom. What the world calls wisdom and what God calls wisdom is two different things. And do you realize there are going to be plenty of people, there are going to be plenty of smart people in hell? There are, by the world standards. There are going to be plenty of smart people in hell. In fact, they've got so smart, they've decided to live with their own wisdom instead of God's. And that's how a lot of people conduct or govern their lives. And they have decided that they can play by their own rules. I was reading after somebody uh, just the other day, and I was reading this book, and they, I started getting into the part to where they decided, and this is a religious leader, they have decided that God's not going to turn anybody away from heaven that's got a good heart. And they gave some horrible examples of that, of people that they believed were going to be in heaven, even though they were wicked people. Because they had a good heart. Now, the greatest form of pride, and that's the number one, that's the original sin we call it, right? The greatest form of pride is when you think you're good enough without Jesus Christ. That's the highest form of pride. When you think you can make it on your own, you can do this without Him. And that when you get there, you're going to talk Him into something. But God said there's only one way to get to heaven, and that's through His Son, Jesus Christ. Whoever believeth on Him will not be put to shame. 
But if you didn't trust in Him, and if you're not following Him, and you cross over to the other side, and you think you're going to talk God into something because you got some ducks out of a mud puddle one time, and you stood in a soup line and poured soup in somebody's bowl, that's not how you get to heaven. That is the worst form of pride to think you're good enough without Jesus Christ to live in the presence of God. There is no worse form of pride than that. Now, let me take you to James chapter 3. Let's look at verse 13. In James chapter 3, verse 13, there's a passage here about uh, wisdom. And he gives us a little understanding of this. In chapter 3, verse 13, he says, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly. So God distinguishes between... And that's why James said earlier, said the reason you're not getting your prayers answered is because you're selfish. You're just wanting it for you. Everything we do has to be for the glory of God. That's how he set this up. You and I benefit in our lives when we approach God seeking His glory first and not our own end first. We call that eros around here, right? We use these hooks to, to, to establish that. Love with a hook or agape is love with no motive. So this is agape, God's kind of love, love that has no motive. And this is eros, a human kind of love, self-centered love, that when we love with eros, and most of you have heard me say this before, when stick man loves with eros, he's got a, his own personal goal in mind. comes back around to him, right? In other words, it looks, it looks like agape originally, but he's got a motive, right? God wants us to learn how to love people without a motive, right? He wants us to just love them for their sake. Why? Because that's how He loved us. For God so agapowed, that's the verb form of agape there in John 3, 16. For God so agapowed or for God so loved the world, that's a verb, that He uh, gave His only begotten Son, right? So let me say something about a true Christian. Their love prompts them to give. That's what a true Christian... Because what's God's first movement internally was agape. His first movement externally was what? Giving. For God so loved that He what? Gave. What did He give? The best thing He had. His only begotten Son. And if you were here Wednesday or listened to that message from Wednesday, you know, you heard me say that God sending His Son was a, a greater hardship or a greater sacrifice than for God to come Himself. Because what parent, if there was a decision between suffering between you and one of your children, what parent wouldn't say, I'll, I'll suffer, let them... It would be harder on a parent to watch its child suffer than for the parent to suffer themselves. None of Anybody that's got children would take their place easy, willingly. Right? So I submit to you this morning that it was a greater sacrifice for God to send His only begotten Son than for the Father to come Himself. And for him to have to stand aside and let all that play out, all the beating and all that, that was a power, that is the greatest sacrifice that'll ever be. And God, because of his love with no motive, his motive was just simply us. He didn't have an ulterior motive because when we talk about God, God don't need you and I to exist. 
We need Him to exist, but He don't need us. God is the only being in the universe that can exist internally. In other words, God needs nothing outside of Himself to exist. That can't be said of any other creature, including Satan. Every other creature is dependent on God's power and His authority to exist. Only God exists internally. We have to have all kinds of things to go right or God to do those things, whether it's oxygen and photosynthesis and even giving life in the womb and all that. All that stuff's been given to us. And we need those things that God has set up for us to exist, not only now but eternally. God exists internally. So when God saves us, it don't add to Him anything but pleasure. It's like a, he calls us little children. And he said we've got to approach the kingdom like little children. And so we, we are God's little children. What do little children do? Nothing. They don't do nothing but poop and eat. And what? Bring us joy. They do, don't they? You start talking funny. You act funny. You do things you didn't never do before when you have children. You get down on your hands and knees and get down there and they say something and you know what they said, even though they didn't say a thing. Or whatever, and you talk like they talk. You start goo-gooing, gaga, and all that stuff. They bring you pleasure. They can't mow the grass. They can't wash the dishes. They can't do anything, but they bring you pleasure. The universe is not staying together because I joined God's team. The universe is staying together because God's on His throne and can't nobody throw Him off. That's why the universe is together. The universe is not together because you and I decided to join God's team. The universe is going to stay together because... And that, listen, we, I love God's attributes. I'm thankful for His... The number one attribute since I've been saved is long-suffering. How many know what I'm talking about? I love that attribute. I'm glad our God is long-suffering. But mercy, grace, love, forgiveness, we, all His attributes are wonderful, and I'm thankful for them. But that's not what makes God God. You know what makes God God? is because He's on His throne, and can't nobody get Him off of it. He's in charge. There's a psalmist that goes like this. He says, the Lord reigns, and if we read it in the Hebrew, it would say it like this. The Lord reigns, and you better be glad that's Him that reigns and not someone else. You know why? Because He's perfect. He's just. He can't do any wrong. And so we should be thankful every day that God's on His throne. You should, I'm thankful you're not on the throne, and you should be thankful I'm not on the throne. My wife would amen that. But I'm thankful God's on the throne because He cannot do any wrong. And so this, there's a difference between earthly wisdom and God's kind of wisdom. Let me give you some examples. Wisdom is the discrimination of good and evil to discern and to be able to move into that. The beginning of wisdom is the fear of God. That's how the Hebrew says it. In, that, in Proverbs chapter 9 it says, The beginning of wisdom is fear of the Lord. So there's a connection there. In other words, you and I do not have wisdom without fearing God. Not the kind of wisdom God's talking about. If we don't, so if God's not retained in our person, if we don't look unto Him, we don't have any wisdom. You may have a little smarts by the world's concern, but you don't have God's kind of wisdom. So what the world calls wisdom and what God calls wisdom is two different things. Fear and love. That Fear. Now here's how we here's how 
the kind of fear we're talking about when we look at Proverbs. Put Proverbs 9 and 10 back up there. Fear and love, they work together. This kind of fear that he's talking about. Here's, here's how it works. Fear, this kind of fear we're talking about in, in Proverbs here. Fear that's, that fears disappointing. Fear that fears disappointing. Because we love the one who we don't disappoint. Who we don't want to disappoint. Same thing happens in the marriage or other relationships. The fear of betraying. Not the fear of, of, of approaching or not of being afraid of God, but those concerns that we have. We don't want to disappoint God. We don't want to betray God. And we don't want to not be faithful. Now, we're in Teshuvah. Anybody remember why I talked about Teshuvah is a time of return? We have about 30 days left. We've had about 10 of them so far. Feast of Trumpets is coming. That's not the end of Teshuvah. But Teshuvah will go on until Yom Kippur. And those last 10 days are the days of awe. And it's like a reminder, this, the trial run of saying, you've got to get this done in these next 10 days if you've not already got it done. But I, I study that, especially this time of year, because I'm learning more and more about Teshuvah. It means the returning to the Lord in a particular thing. Don't just be generic about it. Well, the Israelites, during this 40 days of returning or repentance, if you want to call it that, they were to be specific. They weren't just to say, ah, oh, I'm here, God, forgive me for everything. But they were to be specific. It means coming back to God's perspective and living it. In other words, don't just say you're sorry for what you've not done and then just not pick it up and start doing it. That's, that's what we should do. Now, if you've ever made a vow to God and not kept it, then start doing it. That's repentance. Repentance is when you've not done something and you turn and embrace it. You remember the two sons in the New Testament? The, the father said, I need you to work today. One said, I'll go work, and he didn't go. The other one said, I, did, I won't work, but what did he do? He had to change a heart. That's teshuva. That's repentance. And he went and worked anyway. That's, that, that's real repentance. Real repentance is saying, not just saying, I'm sorry for what you asked me to do that I didn't do, but, but making sure you get into it and do it, what he's asked you to do. And that's what this tissue, and be specific. Where have you let down in your spiritual life? Evaluate. That's why these 40 days are important, that you can evaluate your spiritual journey. So fear is love. Fear and love work together that we do not want to disappoint God, we do not want to betray God, and we do not want to be unfaithful. And if we looked at our lives, every one of us have done all of those. Every one of us have at some point or another in our Christian life. Not being faithful is what love asks of us. So, if you're whatever love asks of you, which is God, we need to step into it. Whatever He asks. When I was in Arizona many years ago, there was a guy named Doug Weed. And some of you have heard me tell this story. <clears throat> Forgive me, it's all I know. But Doug Weed uh, was speaking. Tommy Barnett's church, one of the largest churches in America, in Phoenix. And he was speaking. We had a, 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 a in this setting. And he said to us, he was talking about discipleship. He said, God sets the rules. And this is where I started understanding that everything don't have to be a heaven or hell issue. That's how most shallow discipleship was. Well, it ain't going to send me to hell, so, you know. That's shallow discipleship. Ultimate discipleship is when we embrace God and say, whatever you ask of me, I'm doing it 
doesn't matter whether it's a heaven or hell issue, as we call it. Because God sets the standards. And this particular guy was talking about how that if God comes in a certain situation that we don't think the standard for our culture and he asks us to follow suit, then we should follow suit. You know, your Christianity should cause you to go against the grain. Because the world's going to hell. And if your Christianity is not bringing up some conflict at some points in your life, then you might want to check yourself. Because Christianity does run counter to the culture. Look at our culture. Our culture, everything's permissible. And we've passed laws since the 60s that went against God's law. Now we have things that are legal in our country that are not legal in God's kingdom. Can you, see, can you see them bringing up a bill for abortion in heaven? And we know what an assault our children are under. The foster care system, even in Kentucky, is an epidemic. If they make it out of the womb, which is risky nowadays, then they've got to hopefully get into a family that's intact. I mean, the devil is after our children to destroy them. And then if they get in a family and that family's not spiritually in tune and they go into school, then they get indoctrinated with the ways of, of the culture instead of God. This is an old statistic. Forgive me, it's all I know again. But years ago, probably 10 years ago, I read a poll that said 4% of 12-year-olds have a biblical worldview. Do you understand what that means? That means 96% of 12-year-olds in America... Look at the world through a different set of lenses than the Bible. 96% of them. No wonder we're where we're at. 96%. Nine and a half uh, students out of ten. Poor Horatio. You remember some, some of you will remember that. A couple of you know what I'm talking about with Andy Griffith. There. Uh, nine and a half, a little over nine and a half of them are looking at the world through a different set of lenses than God, God's perspective. That's tragic. But, that, but the devil is assaulting our children. He's destroying them. If you go back to pagan cultures, that's what they did. They, they aborted their children after they were born. That's what we're, we're even talking about that in this country. They take them and lay them on the altars of a false god and let them be destroyed by fire. Or they would take them out into the valley of Baca and places like that in the trash heaps and let the wild animals have them if they didn't want them. Nothing new under the sun. Just new ways of doing it. And I suggest if you have any thought of thinking abortion's okay, I suggest you watch a video when they're aborting a child and watch that child try to get away from those instruments and the things they're using. That child feels pain. It'll, it'll make you sick. And it should make us sick. Our children are under such an assault. It's a miracle for one of them to get out of the womb and get in a family that's spiritually in tune, that's leading them to God. That's rare. And you guys are the exception, hopefully. But that's so rare. And there's so many things that are going on in our world to rob our attention. But please, please, make sure you get some spiritual enrichment time with your families. Find you a moment. Find you at least 
do that every week. Find you a couple of times a week. Something. Get some spiritual enrichment with your families. Now, let's go to uh, this fear. God is like a loving parent. He, we must trust that God understands our humanity. And He's like a, live, a loving parent, right? He embrace, he, a loving parent embraces that child who is kicking and screaming but needs to be held and attended to. Have you ever done that? You had to pick that child up, love on it. That's how God is with us. He's on our side. Everyone at one time or another has probably been afraid that you're not spiritual enough. We're going to talk about that this morning. The fear of God is to carry, to, the fear of God is to carry the desire that on our actions would not disappoint, disrespect, or violate Him. That's what the fear of God is. That we carry with us the desire that our actions will not disappoint Him, disrespect Him, or violate Him. I want you to come back to that. Teshuva. Come back to spending time with your family spiritually. There's a place you can come back if you've let that go. Sometimes summertime, it's easy to let that go. Come back to that. Teshuva. Return. Say, okay, I'm going to start gathering my children up at least once or twice a week or something and, and giving spiritual enrichment to my family. Husbands, wash your wives with the Word of God. Sanctify them. Come back to that. I think I'm hitting on something, man. I knew I was going to. The Holy Spirit has been all in here with me yesterday and today in this service. People have already been healed, I believe. Return. See what I'm saying? When, when we say return or repent, most of us run and think, well, I'm not getting drunk and I'm not. No, no, no. Let's return in the little things. It's the little foxes that spoil the vine. You want your child to change? Feed it the Word of God. I shared this Wednesday, but I'm going to share it again because it's powerful. <clears throat> I had a missionary from Jordan come and see me. They'd been there for several years when they came to see me, and he said to me, he said, Preacher, he didn't really know me at the time, but he said, I'm not having any fruit over there. He said, we're having parties and we're doing little uh, crafts and things with the women and the children. I said, <clears throat> let, me give you an, uh, let me give you a piece of advice. I said, you go back and start feeding them God's Word. And I'm telling you that for your children. You start feeding your children the Word. Quit telling them mommy and daddy says all the time. There's a time for that. But you, we always let our children know when they were growing up that they had a higher authority to answer to than us. The bug didn't stop with us. It stops with the Lord. Train your children. Train your grandchildren. Spend some time. Enrich them. He went back to Jordan. He and his family went back to Jordan. He called me just about a month or two after they had returned. He said, it's unbelievable what God's doing. He said, we just started Bible studies, started teaching them the Word, and here they started coming. Some of them were standing outside. They couldn't all get in. This makes the difference. I don't care how smart you think you are. You can't do what this can do. I can't do what this can do. None of us can. Please, I'm begging you. To feed your children and your grandchildren, whatever you can, the moments, the opportunities, give them this. It might get them out of the psychiatrist's office. It might get them to change their attitude at school. It might get them because the Word of God is what heals. The Bible said He sent His Word and healed them. Why? I didn't just get you up here at communion and tell you a good 
uh, emotional spill. I fed you out of Isaiah 53. Why? Because that word is what heals. That's why I read Isaiah 53 instead of just getting up here and say, like a lot of preachers would, oh, I feel God. I felt God all night and all this morning. I knew He was taking us there. Then I had some confirmation from some of the things that were said during worship, and I knew that's what we were supposed to do. I could have got up here and said, because you all love me and trust me, I could have got up here and said, here's what God's saying, let's do it. But I wanted to make sure you got God's Word, because anything in here is way better than I can say it. Way better. And I want to say something to you, Mom and Dad. It's way better than anything you're ever going to say to your children or grandchildren. Give them some of this. Quit telling them how smart you are and trying to figure out ways around things. Start giving them this. Return to that. Return to God's Word. Heaven and earth will pass away. You know what that means? Every college, every institution, every seminary, every church, every home, every business will be gone, but the Word of God will stand forever. Somebody give Him praise. Every government will be gone. And we'll be glad for that because Isaiah said the government of the world will rest upon His shoulders and of His kingdom there will be no end. We can be a part of that kingdom now. But quit playing by your own rules. Return to the Lord. Teshuva. Get back into it. Quit asking everybody for their advice and get in the Word of God. You'd save yourself a lot of trouble. I know, and I'm about old enough and have enough gray hair to start doing this myself. And I know some old preachers that they won't even counsel people if they're not in the Word of God. They come and won't counsel. They say, you've been in your Bible? And they say, no. They say, go get in your Bible and then come back. Because what does a man have to say if you ain't willing to listen to God? There ain't no wisdom in that. Can you say amen? Now, let's go to, um, let's go to, let me take you where I really, I'm done. Because I felt the Holy Spirit say, you're done. Let's stand to our feet. You guys come to worship. We've all, the Lord's already been moving in this place. And I'm done. And I know when I'm done. That's what I have to help train preachers with because I've got this gray hair. Sometimes they'll preach a good message and I have to tell them, but you missed your off-ramp. You should have got off at exit 14. You got off at exit 44. I'm getting off at exit 14. Listen. God wants all of us to do some returning. And none of you are not the perfect saint. There are no such things. So chances are in the last year you may have drifted away from something or two. Doesn't mean you're a bad person. Doesn't mean the Lord don't love you. It just means you don't want to disappoint, do you? You don't want to neglect. You don't want to disrespect. And you want God to have full reign in your, in your life, in your, I started to say your wife, and I want that too, but your wife, your life, your husband, your children, your community, you want God to have full reign in that. Now, I know the Lord's already done some stuff in this building because of the way He instructed us with communion. But I'm going to open this altar up again. If you, if you, if you need to do some returning to the Lord, come up here, get your own spot. You don't need nobody to... If you're here and you're lost and you need to be saved, come, I'll pray with you. But if you're a believer, find you a spot up here. Don't worry about what people are going to think. Just drive you a stake in the ground this morning and say, you know what, I see that, Lord. I'm going to turn that around today. I'm going to step into that specific thing. 
whatever that is, as we worship Him here. I think the Holy Spirit has been here and He's with us this morning. He'll, he's going to love on you this morning. He's not going to condemn you. He's just going to point some things out. Just have that moment like the prodigal did. He's out there with the pigs and he said, you know what? This ain't no way to live. You know what the Bible says there in Luke 15? said, he came to himself. He came to himself. That's what God wants you and I to do when we're out of whack somewhere. One of my cousins who was like a green beret in the military, <clears throat> when he got home, he had no guidance. He had, a, he had a dad that kept rattlesnakes under his bed in boxes and stuff. And he wasn't no, he wasn't no preacher. He was a moonshiner. <laughs> he didn't have any much raising. When he got home, he got into all kinds of things. Was, went to prison for armed robbery after he'd already been in the military rough, lived rough, kind of guy that you could turn loose like Rambo out in the woods and he'd survive. He was a mountain boy that was trained to survive like that. He was on his way out from prison and he was at a halfway, what we call a halfway house and he was telling me this after he, he had walked with the Lord for a while then he had backslidden and that's when he did the armed robbery. He said he was standing at that fence and he was looking at the Tennessee River and he said, I knew how to lose my scent. He said, I was going to jump that fence, hit that river and float as far as I could get out. And he said, I was going to North Carolina to kill a guy. He said, he'd betrayed me. He said, I was standing at that fence, looking at that river. And he said, the Lord spoke to me and said, if you jump this fence, your life's over. He come to himself that night. He said, I turned. They had church service that night at the halfway house. He returned to the Lord. He teshuvahed back to the Lord. When he got out, nobody would hire him. Finally, a guy hired him to drive a concrete truck. Making six or seven dollars an hour. And he came to me one day and he said, Man, I feel like the Lord's telling me to give 20% instead of 10. And I started to say, Man, you don't have... That's not... But the Holy Spirit checked me and said, leave him alone. It's between me and him. He had no electricity. He slept on the floor, a hardwood floor. But he was committed. Two years later, he owned his own business, 60-acre farm, running cattle, had people working for him because he did what God asked of him. Return. He had done everything. He'd already walked with the Lord once, and he'd done everything wrong. But when he returned, do you feel that? When he returned, the Lord didn't hold none of that against him. Just took him right on in. Just like the prodigal. When he got home, his dad didn't hold anything that against him. His dad didn't say, what would you do with that money out of that CD I give you? His dad didn't touch any of that, did he? He said, come on. Go kill the big cow out in the field. Get that ring. Shoes. My son was alive and dead, and he's alive again. Similar to what my cousin went through. Will you return this morning? Have you got something you need to return in? This altar's open as we worship. Will you come?